Welcome to the sermon podcast of Southside Baptist Church, a body of Christ located in beautiful Norman Park, Georgia. We are so glad you chose to listen in today. It's our prayer you would find the message of Jesus Christ compelling and uplifting, and that your life would be changing continually from hearing the Word of God. If you would like more information about our church or would like more digital content, please feel free to check us out on the web at southsidenp.org. And now for today's message. Turn with me this morning, if you will, to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, be looking at verses 1 through 17. This morning, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. This morning, as we consider life's greatest comeback story, encountering the living Lord, encountering the living Lord. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. We serve a risen Lord. He is alive indeed. He is alive. If you found that passage of Scripture, please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. This morning, and for time-wise, I'm just going to read verse 17 of chapter 3. Uh, normally, as you know, I read through the passage of Scripture, but we'll read through those as we go along. So, uh, Colossians chapter 3, follow along with me at verse 17. Paul says this to the church there at Colossae. He says, And whatever you do, whatever... You do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Fathers, we come to you again as this time where we hear the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray again that it's not my words, but yours, Father. Father, we're talking about life's greatest comeback. We're talking about the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the encounter that we can have with that risen Lord. There are effects. We are affected by that resurrection. We are affected by that encounter. So Father, I pray this morning if there are folks here that who have not had that encounter, who have not encountered the risen Lord, the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, I pray that today be the day that they make that decision. Father, if there are those here this morning that have had that encounter, Lord, but aren't just living the way they need to live, I pray that they understand what the effects of that encounter has had upon them, Lord, and they get their life back where they need to be. Father, we thank you for this opportunity, Lord, where we can come and celebrate together the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we ask all these things, believing. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The story is told this way. It was basically a cave in the earth, a hewn out space in the rock. Maybe there was others like it in the area. It was originally a burial place for a rich man and his family. But it was still an ordinary gravesite for those who had died. It represented nothing but a sad and finished conclusion. It was a place of darkness. Especially since the entrance was covered by a large stone. There was no light on the inside. Silence reigned. No voices on the inside of the tomb. It was a place of memory instead of a place of hope. 
It was a place of finality, for no one had ever come out of this place. Not this time, though. Someone very unique had been buried there. Somebody who had already announced that he had no intentions of staying in the tomb that he had buried, he was buried in. No, this time it was Jesus who was buried there. The Son of God, the way, the truth, and the life. If you're the life, it would make sense that death wouldn't have any hold over you. No rock would be large enough to keep the t- in the tomb the one who made the rock in the first place. This time, someone would indeed come out. This time, there was going to be a great comeback. But what about the dark, hewn-out cave? The light of the world would brighten it. Hope would spring forth from it. Death would lose its power in it. And because of its emptiness, unknown, ordinary, unspectacular followers of Jesus would give their lives to tell the story of the greatest comeback in human history. Just so we're clear, we need to understand the reason Jesus went to the cross. Christ went to the cross because of you and because of me. Christ went to the cross to bear the wrath of God that you and I deserved. He was the Lamb of God. He was the perfect Lamb of God. He was the unblemished Lamb of God. He was the only one that could take that terrible cross and die on that terrible cross on our behalf. Jesus shed His blood. No hope for us. But if the cross was all there was, then there would be no hope for us. There would be no forgiveness of sin. No, it had to be the resurrection that had to follow on that third day to provide us an opportunity for salvation. To provide us an opportunity for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus Christ died so that others may have life. But church, Jesus didn't stay dead. Just as Christ was the only one who could die for the sins of humanity, He was the only one who could come back from the dead. He was the only one that God the Father could resurrect from the dead. Jesus is alive, and that is what we celebrate this Resurrection Sunday. We celebrate a risen Savior. We celebrate the greatest event in human history. We celebrate the greatest comeback in human history. We celebrate life's greatest come back the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead the apostle paul speaking of the resurrection says this in first corinthians chapter 15 verses 14 through 19 and if christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain we are even found to be misrepresenting god because we testified about god that he raised christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. Christ resurrected from that grave. This morning we're going to see some things in Colossians, but the main point is this. Paul laid out for the church there in Colossae what effect an encounter with the living Lord makes. 
And for us today, an encounter with the living Lord, listen, church, an encounter with the living Lord changes everything. Everything is changed. So Jesus' comeback, it sets up the greatest comeback ever. And as Paul walks through this passage of Scripture, he gives us some effects of that encounter with the living Lord. So we're going to consider four things this morning, four effects, if you will, of that encounter with the living Lord. Number one, an encounter with the living Lord transforms our point of view. Transforms our point of view. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Paul writes this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things on earth. An encounter with the living Lord changes the way we see life. A better translation may be there for, for that uh, particular verse. It says, since then you have been raised with Christ. The similar opening you see back in verse 20. Paul speaks of reality here. The reality is that the Colossians, they had been raised to a newness of life. We see that in Romans chapter 6 verse 4. They had had a salvation experience. The old was gone and the new had come. The ESV, the study Bible, says this about when when Paul says being raised with Christ. He says dying and raising with Christ. It signifies death to the power of sin and Satan plus empowerment to live the life Christ calls believers to live. When we have that encounter with Jesus Christ, when we have that encounter with the living Lord, listen, when we make that profession of faith, we die to sin and we die to the power of Satan. He no longer has control over us because we're empowered by the Spirit. We're empowered by God Himself. So naturally, that would or or should lead lead them and us as well to a different point of view. Our focus should shift at that particular point in time. And Paul goes on in this verse, he goes on to explain this change in the point of view. Basically, the changed point of view goes from a me-centered point of view, it's all about me, to a Christ-centered point of view. Paul says, seeks the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And encounter with the living Lord, it adjusts our focus. It adjusts our focus away from me, away from what I want, to what Christ wants in my life. That me-centered goes away. That me-centered point of view is not a heavenly point of view. The me-centered point of view is an earthly point of view. And it changes our point of view from that earthly point of view to that Christ-centered point of view. Seek there. It speaks of a continual thing. This is not a one and done thing. When we begin to seek the things of God, when we begin to seek, seek the things that are above, it's a continuous thing. It's an ongoing process. To seek the heavenly and to put away the earthly. The living Lord. Now think about it, that changed point of view. It's all because we have had that encounter with the living Lord. Now think about it. Think about what dictates our point of view of things. When we're me-centered, the news will dictate our point of view. The culture 
around us dictates our point of view. Our political agendas will dictate our point of view. Our moral, the sexual revelation and the moral revelation dictates our point of view. Evil, corruption, fame and fortune, wealth and success. Even churches. Even churches fall prey to this me-centered point of view. Churches want these rock star pastors. They want bigger budgets. They want bigger ministries. They want all these other things. They want big attendance. They want all these things. The biggest youth. The biggest children's ministries. In other words, it's a me-centered focus. It's all about me. It's all about us. Instead of that heavenly focus. Instead of asking the question, Lord, how do we glorify you as a church? What can we do in our ministries that glorifies you as a church? Paul says, no, no. We, when we encounter the living Lord, we begin this life's greatest comeback. Our point of view changes. We begin to pursue deeper knowledge of Christ. We begin to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Ephesians 4, 1 says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called, Paul says. Followers of Christ live a life worthy of His name. The key here is this, is we, we view things of the world, we view things uh, and people, we view events not through the eyes, our eyes, but through the eyes of the one seated at the right hand of God, through the eyes of Jesus. And when we begin to view things through the eyes of Christ, then we begin to see people differently. We begin to respond to people differently. We begin to respond to activities and options and all those other things differently. We begin to look at those not from a me-centered point of view, but from a Christ-centered point of view. It changes everything. An encounter with the living Lord changes everything. Well, how do we do that? Well, Paul gives us uh, the idea here. He gives in verse 2, he says, set your minds. Set your minds there. It means to be devoted to. It means to think or have the same inner disposition. Who is he talking about to be, be devoted to? To Christ. Be devoted to Jesus. That's our Christ-centered point of view. And Scripture. Scripture must fulfill the, uh, fill the minds of the believer. What we fill our minds with is what we think about. What we fill our minds with. If we fill our minds with trash, you know what comes out of this mouth? Trash. Trash. If we fill our minds with the Word of God, if we fill our minds, if we're Christ-centered people, then what comes out of our mouth is love because Jesus is love. All those kind of things. When we fill our minds with Scripture, the Bible is the only reliable source to establish a Christ-centered point of view. The truth of Scripture. The truth of Scripture. I've got a little thing that I like to follow. It's, it, it's, it's this. It says, it's read, study, meditate, repeat. Read, study, Meditate, repeat. That's how I study God's Word. But if there's any additional questions about this point of view, Paul clears that up in verses 3 and 4. He says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with 
with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Notice that you have died. There is past tense. Past tense. They had died to this old self. They had died to this me-centered attitude. This me-centered point of view. For spiritual life to exist, something must first die. And that death takes place at salvation. That death takes place with you and I. When we have had that encounter with the living Lord, when we say, yes, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I want you to forgive me of my sins. When we have that encounter, the old self dies. And only when the old self dies can the new self flourish and the new self be a reality. We died to the old self, the me-centered self. And because of that, our life is now hidden and secure in Christ, soon to be revealed, soon to be revealed when Christ himself is revealed. Listen, that's why the world has such a problem with Christians. They don't understand or, or accept that we have gained this new point of view. That is why they call us Jesus freaks. That is why they called us weirdos. That's why they call us on the wrong side of history. That's why they call us bigots. It's kind of strange that as Christians, when we love our friends and our neighbors, it's kind of strange that the world sees that as strange. What a weirdo. It's because I've had an encounter with the living Lord and it's changed my perspective. Think about the Apostle Paul. If you want to turn with me to the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter seven, verse 58, we see Paul's old self. In verse 58, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. They're talking about Stephen there. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named who? Saul. Saul, the old man, the old self there. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over here. But Saul, Saul, the old Saul, was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. But may I remind you, when the Saul, the apostle Paul had an encounter with the living Lord, his life was radically changed. In chapter 9, verses 1, starting in verse 1, But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters in the synagogue at Damascus, so that he had found, so if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Verse 5, and he said, who are you, Lord? Verse 3, now as we went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly, here it is, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Instead of persecuting the church, Paul was the one that was going to carry the message of the gospel because he had had an encounter with the living Lord. 
for I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake, for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus has appeared to you on the road by which you came and has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul was a changed man. Paul had had an encounter with the living Lord. And it changed everything for the Apostle Paul. Prior to an encounter with the living Lord, we had a me-centered point of view. Our pursuits were the things of this world. But an encounter with the living Lord, listen, it changes our point of view. We no longer are focused on the me and we're focused on Christ. The pursuits of this world lose their attraction. Therefore, we no longer set our minds on the earthly, but on the heavenly. Our focus is on His plan and His purpose and what He wants to do with our lives. But that's not all. That's not all. There's a change in our point of view, but Paul goes on. He says there's a change in our person as well. Change in our person as well. An encounter with the living Lord, number two, transforms our person. An encounter with the living Lord... It completely transforms the person who we are. Starting in verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, pursuit, uh, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, and these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or scathian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as is the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Christ, Paul basically speaks of two separate persons in these passages. We see the negative or the old self in verses 5 through 9. We also see the positive or the new self in verses 10 through 13. In verses 5 through 9, we see the old self. Listen, there's a stark contrast in the old self. And the one who has had an encounter with the living Lord. And Paul makes that very clear. He says in verse 5, put to death. Put to death means bring those things under control and treat them as though they were dead. Again, this is a continual process. The struggle with the earthly is real. So we can't let our guard down. If we're followers of Christ, if we've experienced the living Lord, we can't let our guard down. We must fight the battle. First Peter 5, 8 says, be sober minded, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So this passage, along with others, uh, has caused some rift in in, in a lot of scholarships. Uh, some believe this is basically put to death there. They believe that this is is literal uh, instead of a figurative term uh, that Paul uses here. In other words, it's a asceticism is what they 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 believe. And asceticism is simply this: a a severe self discipline and avoidance of all form of of indulgence, typically for a religious reason. In other words. 
Uh, they claim that, again, this is a literal interpretation of put to death. Origen, a theologian in the early church, was voluntary, voluntarily castrated because of this. Because he believed that this was a literal thing that Paul was saying, put to death these passions, these sexual immoral passions. And Christians even today have been known to go to great and sometimes painful and severe lengths to conquer sin. Paul's not talking literal here, but he's talking figuratively. He's not referring to that literally putting to death the members, but to figuratively putting to death or eliminating everything in the believer's life that is contrary to godliness. Well, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do, how do we, are we supposed to understand it? How do we put to death what is earthly? Well, we do that by encountering the living Lord. We do that by salvation. We do that by a salvation experience. We do that by being watchful. We do that by being prayerful. We do that by self-discipline. In other words, we don't go to places we know that would create an issue for us. That's self-discipline. We do that by being filled with the Spirit and Spirit within us. We do that by letting the Word of God richly dwell within us. We read, we study, we meditate, and we repeat. So what are the things that Paul talks about here? Listen, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these because I want to get to the good stuff. I want to get to the new, the new man, the new, the new life. We're just going to go over these and hit these fairly quickly. You'll get the point. Sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is any sexual sin, every kind of sexual sin outside of the covenant of marriage. The covenant of marriage specified in scripture, not specified by the government or any government. Any form of illicit sex, homosexuality, fornication, premarital sex, idolatry, any of those things. Impurity. It's filthiness or uncleanliness. It speaks to the thoughts. It speaks to the intentions. It's more general in nature than sexual immorality. Lust would be one of those. The point there is the battle begins in the mind. The battle begins up here. Passion. Physical passion there. Sexual passion set loose in the body. We burn with passion, evil desires, the mental side of passion, sexual lust created in the mind, irregular or inordinate desires, appetites, or lust. James 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says this, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his what? His own desires. His own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings Fourth, death. Covetousness. Covetousness. It's the root from which all others of these springs. It's the root from which our evil desires, our passion, our impurity, and our sexual immorality comes from. The will to have more leads a person to defraud others. It leads a person to greed. It leads us to all these other things. This covetousness is that insatiable desire to have what is forbidden or to have more of something that we don't have or that we want. It's a selfish desire above the desires of God. Again, it goes right back to that me-centered point of view that Paul talks about in verses 1 through 4. Verses 6 and 7, he gives us specific reasons that we need to put to death. The first one is the wrath of God. 
We put to death these 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 passions, these me-centered passions, because we fear the wrath of God. There is no fear of the wrath of God in our world. There is no fear of the wrath of God in our culture. There's no fear of the wrath of God in our church. People of God don't fear the wrath of God. God will one day suddenly intervene in human history and will hold everyone accountable. Those who live evil lives will face the final judgment, destined for separation from God for all eternity. Now listen, believers, if we're, you're a believer in here, we have been delivered from that wrath to come. Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians. And thus we will not experience the wrath of God that non-believers will face. Nonetheless, Paul is making clear here, we still need to separate ourselves from the things of the world. The things that are focused on that me-centered attitude. You remember Sodom and Gomorrah? How about Noah and the great flood? But not only that, Paul says in verse 7, listen, you need to learn from your past mistakes. He said, you once lived in this lifestyle. You were once controlled by this me-centered attitude, this me-centered point of view. What Paul is basically saying says, listen, you of all people should know what it's like to live in sin. You of all people should know what it's like and what, what the control of this lifestyle can be. How it controls you, how it manipulates you. You should know that already. So why in the world would you want to go back to it? Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, he says it this way, Christian, what hast thou to do with sin? Hath it not cost thee enough already? Burnt child, wilt thou play with fire? When thou hast already been, uh, been between the jaws of the lion, wilt thou step a second time into his den? Hast thou not had enough of the old serpent? Did he not poison all thy veins once? And wilt thou play over the hole of the asp or put his hand under the cockatrice's den a second time? Oh, be not so mad, so foolish. Did sin ever yield thee real pleasure? Didst thou find solid satisfaction in it? If so, go back to thine old drudgery and wear the chain again if it delights thee. But inasmuch as sin did never give thee what it promised to bestow, but deluded thee with lies, be not a second time snared by the old fowler. Be free, and let the remembrance of thy ancient bondage forbid thee to enter it ever again. Get rid of that me-centered attitude. Get rid of that old self but Paul goes on to, he, that's, that's not it. That's not all we need to get rid of. He reveals several more characteristics there of that old self in verses 8 and 9. It says, but you must put away all oh, wrath, anger and wrath, anger there. It, it, these are, these are, Paul goes into these because these are social relationships. These are the things that you and I deal with one another. It's an attitude of the heart. That's that deep, smoldering, resentful bitterness. It's an attitude of the heart. May I remind you that when we are provoked, the one who provokes is not the, not, not the one that created the anger within us. The anger was already there. We just directed that at the one who provoked us. Wrath, sudden outburst of anger. It's like a match when it's placed in a pile of dry leaves. What happens? It flames up in an instant and then it's gone. But the damage is already done. Malice, moral evil in general, natural bend on doing harm to others, slander, 
Slander is where we, it's the, the Greek word blasphemia. It's where we get our English word blasphemy. Blasphemy is directed towards God. Slander is directed towards others. Obscene talk. It's talk intended to hurt others. It's foul language. It's filthiness of the mouth. It's cursing. It's crude jokes. It's coarse jesting. And sometimes it's even sarcasm. Sarcasm. You know the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. That's hogwash. That's hogwash. Words can destroy. Words can destroy. Matthew twelve thirty six says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account. We are going to give an account for every careless word they speak. Be careful what you say to people. Be careful about your talk. Be careful what comes out of your mouth. Verse 9, he talks about lies. Those are falsehoods. Those are the little white lies, red lies, green lies, and all the above. These are all practices of that old self. The self where we had that me-centered point of view. It was all about us. Paul says these must be removed. They must be taken off like dirty clothes and left off. Until they're cleaned and renewed again. And that encounter with the living Lord. That encounter when we have that encounter. We remove those old clothes. We remove that old self. And when we remove that old self. And have that encounter. We put on that new self. And this is the good stuff. This is the good stuff here. In verse 10 it says. And have put on the new self. Which is being renewed in the knowledge. After the image of its creator. That new self. That's that regenerate self. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says it this way, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone has had an encounter with the living Lord, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. This is not a remodel. This is not a refurbish. This is a complete contrast to the old self. The old home place, think of it this way, the old home place has been razed. And a new home, a completely new home has been built on the same property. The new self, Paul says, is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. The old self was renewed in the knowledge of the world. The new self is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of the creator. Renewed again. Being renewed, it's a continual process. It speaks of our progressive sanctification. As we grow in the knowledge of Christ, it speaks of our spiritual growth. Our spiritual maturity. It's not a stagnant thing. Notice what the source of that is. What do you think the source is? The Bible. The Word of God. Scripture. This new self, it's being renewed continually. There is an increased level of knowledge. But it's not a knowledge of the world. It's a knowledge of God. An increased knowledge of of God leads to a deeper love of God. A deeper love of God leads to deeper and more obedience to God. And that obedience leads us to become more Christ-like, Christ-like, which is exactly what the goal is. This new regenerate self completely replaces the unregenerate self. In other words, it completely re- replaces. It is a new system of things. It is new. It is completely new. The old self is gone. Paul says you are a new creature. You're a new creation. We're alive in Christ, so that raises the instant question that some of you may be thinking. If the old, unregenerate self is crucified with Christ, 
it has been transformed and replaced with the new regenerate alive in Christ self, then why in the world do believers still struggle with sin? Why do we still struggle? The new self lives, here's the answer, the new self lives in the old body. And therefore, that new self must battle with the flesh. You battle with the flesh. The inner man, the new self, inside that new self, that new self, in that new self, in that new regenerate self, there is no sin. Why? Because that new self is the spirit itself. And in the spirit, there is no sin. But in that old self, in that flesh, there's still the battle that we face. There's still the struggles with sin, the sinful desires, the drives, the attitudes, the passions, the lusts, the evils, all associated with the fallen human beings. That's why it's a constant battle, church. It's a constant battle between spirit and flesh. But can I tell you this morning, if you are a child of God, if you have had that encounter with the living Lord, you have the power over sin. Living within you, it is the Spirit, it is the Spirit of God living within you. Why do we waste it? Why do we live defeated in sin? Why do we let the old nature, the flesh, control us? But it's not just individual benefits that Paul talks about here in verse 11. He says, uh, he says this, here there is not Greek or Jew or, or circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, scathing, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He says no, the Greeks were the uncircumcision. This speaks of the unity among believers in Christ. The Greeks were the uncircumcised Gentiles. The Jews were the circumcised. They were, they were God's chosen people. The barbarians were simply people who spoke an inarticulate and stammering language, a term of derision uh, given to those who were not part of the elite. The Scathians, they were hated and they were feared above all barbarians. Nomadic and warlike people, savages. Paul goes from the worst to the supposedly best here. The slave is a bondservant. Involuntary service there. He goes there to the free, just the opposite of that. There are very real differences. Fellowship would be virtually impossible between these groups without the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's that encounter with the living Lord that changes everything. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings us all together. I've said it before. Do we want racial unity? Then, then look to the gospel. We want unity in our culture? Look to the gospel. Because the gospel changes everything. Because it's Christ is all and in all. Christ breaks down all racial, religious, and cultural and social barriers. Why? Because when we are living that Christ-centered point of view, we do what? We see things through Christ's eyes. We see things as Jesus sees them. Not as I want to see them. Jesus doesn't see color. He doesn't see race. He sees children that He died on the cross for and rose on that third day for. That's what Jesus sees. And that's what we should see as well. That encounter, it leads to the new clothes that we put on in that new self. When that happens, we, the chosen, those of us who are the elect, the holy, those of us who are set apart, set apart for service to God, Paul says, and the beloved objects of God's special love, we put on different things. No, what is 
And our clothes don't look like the old clothes. They don't look like the old things. No, what does Paul say? He says we put on compassionate hearts. What's that mean? That we have a deep gut feeling that we feel compassion, concerned with meeting the needs of others. Why? Because Jesus feels compassion. Kindness. Grace that pervades the whole person, mellowing all that might be harsh. The kind person is not concerned about, is concerned about his neighbor's good as his own. Humility. Putting others above ourselves. That's not belittling ourselves, but that means that we put others above ourselves. Meekness. Willing to suffer injury instead of inflicting it. Patience. Does not get angry, does not get short, does not get resentful or revengeful with others, bearing with one another. It means we endure. We endure. We hold out in spirit of persecution, threats, injuries, and complaints. We bear with one another in forgiveness. You understand if you are a child of God and you have experienced the uh, the, the, the living Lord, you have no right to not forgive. Why? Because our Savior and Lord is our example. And He forgave us. He forgave us. He forgave us. He's our example. We don't have an option. Romans 6 4 says this, We are buried therefore with Him by baptism and death in order that Jesus as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father and we too might walk in newness of life. An encounter with the living Lord, listen, it transforms who we are, how we act and what we do on uh, on the outside because it changes who we are on the inside. Fact is, we cannot have an encounter with the living Lord and stay the same. It's impossible. It's impossible. If you see somebody that says they've had an encounter with the living Lord and they live the same way they did before, they've not had an encounter with the living Lord. That's not my words. That's the Bible's words. Change does not occur by jumping through religious hoops. Change happens through a relationship with the living Lord, putting off the old self and putting on the new, given to us at the new birth. That encounter, it changes our point of view, it changes our person, but it also changes the third thing, it changes our passions. Passions. Number three, the encounter with the living Lord transforms our passions. Verses 14 and 15, Paul says, And above all, these put on love in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. The word passion there is from the Latin pati, which simply means to endure or to suffer. This is not a strong emotion. It's not an emotion that flares up from time to time only to subside eventually. No, according to Paul, the passion of the new self will be that of love. It will be continuous Love, regardless of the situation, regardless of the circumstance, regardless of how that other individual has treated us. It's love. This is that agape type love. This is that self-sacrificial type of love. And he says love, it binds all these other characteristics together. In other words, if you back up to compassionate hearts and kindness and all those others, it's all bound together by love. It's wrapped up in that love ball. Everything else is in the center of that. 
Love is in the center and it all spreads out from there. Why? Because we can't be compassionate. We can't be humble. We can't be uh, kind. We can't do all these things unless we love one another. That's true love. That's agape love. It's not that passion. It's not that feeling. Because if I can fall into love, I can also fall out of love. Consider this. It's out of love that we have, again, compassionate hearts. It's out of love that we are meek. It's out of love that we are patient. It's out of love that we endure. Think about chapter of First Corinthians chapter thirteen. Paul writes a whole chapter about the love, about love, the love chapter, and how important it is. And may I remind you, if I have to, and we think about this resurrection Sunday, but on Friday, Good Friday, Jesus went to the cross. Why? Because of love. God sent His Son because of what? Love. It was out of love that Jesus endured the cross. It was on our behalf. It was out of love that Jesus suffered the way He suffered. It wasn't some strong emotion that flared up and then passed. The passion of Christ was all about love. Jesus came to earth for the purpose of laying down His life for us. And He never wavered from that. But not only love. Paul also says peace. Peace is also associated with this new self. Peace, there is an agreement or a pact, an attitude of rest or security. When we have an encounter with the living Lord, our first, our peace is with God through Christ. We've been reconciled to God because prior to that encounter, we were at enmity with God. We were strangers of God. We were separated from God. We were at war with God because we were in sin. We had that old self. But with that encounter comes peace. First, peace with God and then peace with other individuals. When we have that peace with God, when we've had that encounter with the living Lord, listen, it should naturally, it should naturally go that we also have harmony and peace with those within the body of Christ. We should be but also Paul says it also leads to thankfulness. We should be thankful for what Christ did. We should be thankful for what God did. We should be thankful for all the things that we are thankful for. Not necessarily our material possessions, not necessarily the things that we have. We should yes be thankful for those, but we need to be thankful that we have the opportunity to have that new life. To have that salvation experience. To remove the old clothes of our old self. The sexual immorality and all those other things that Paul talks about. And put on the new. Second Corinthians five fourteen and 15. Paul says this. For the love of Christ controls us. Controls us. The love of Christ is like a car steering wheel. Christ is controlling the steering wheel of our lives. He is, His love controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, no longer have that me-centered attitude, point of view, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. The peace and love of Christ becomes the driving force of our lives. It's no longer us. 
An encounter with the living Lord makes us walk more and more in love and peace. And it is love that drives the things we do. Not that strong emotion, not that passionate emotion of love. No, that agape love, that self-sacrificial love that we think of others before we think of ourselves. And we become passionate about what pleases Christ. Because it's all about Jesus. It's all about God. There's one final encounter this morning that the living Lord produces. An encounter with the living Lord transforms our pursuits. It transforms our pursuits. Look at verse 16. Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We go from worldly pursuits to eternal pursuits. And there's an intellectual and an informational and an emotional component to this transformational aspect of our pursuits. The first part of verse 16, Paul talks intellectually there. He said, let the word of God, the word of Christ, dwell in you richly. The word of Christ is the Bible. That scripture, we've already made that clear. Whatever dwells richly in you is going to come out of you. If the world dwells richly in you, then the world will come out of you. It's natural. But if the Word of God dwells richly in you, to dwell there means to live in. It means to be at home. We are to let the Word of God take residence up in our hearts, to re- in our hearts and minds. Again, read, study, meditate, repeat. Our pursuits are no longer the worldly things, but the truths of Scripture. Why? Because when we have that new life, when we have that new self, when we we begin to let the Word of God dwell in us richly, what happens? When we do that, the Word of God controls us. We're no longer controlled by the world. When we find ourselves in a situation where we might be thinking, oh, wait a minute. That might be against contrary to God's Word. God's Word, the Scripture, the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts. Convicts our hearts. One commentator says the word dwells in us with when we hear it. Matthew chapter 13 verse 9. When we handle it. 2 Timothy 2.15. When we hide it. Psalm 119.11. And hold fast to it. Philippians 2.16. Again. Repeat. Or read. Study. Meditate. Repeat. But there's also an informational portion of this. The second part of verse 16, Paul says this. He says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Teaching there, it's a positive aspect. It's the imputation of the truths of God's word that so richly dwell in us. Sunday school teachers teach scripture. Pastors preach scripture. Moms and dads, you teach scripture to your children. Read the book of Deuteronomy. That's our jobs as parents, to teach our children Scripture, to let that Scripture dwell deeply within them. Listen, if, we let, if, we, if, if parents were doing their job, we wouldn't have to worry about our kids when they go off to school. We wouldn't have to worry about our kids learning about evolution. We wouldn't have to worry about that because we're doing our job. We're teaching our kids Scripture and they know that God created the heavens and the earth. We teach. It's a positive note there. It's informational. 
But there's also that admonishing one another in all wisdom. We're to admonish others. It's one of the things I think we have trouble with as Christians, particularly we think we're judging other people. Listen, when we find our brothers and sisters in sin, we need to admonish them gently and lovingly. But here again, if we're doing it out of love, if we're following Christ, if we're living with letting God's love abound in us, then we will do it lovingly. We will do it gently. And when we do it gently and we, we, we do it lovingly, we need not worry about how that other individual responds. Why? Because God has told us to do what we need to do. And we do what we need to do. We admonish. We admonish. Another in all wisdom. That wisdom there is the wisdom of Scripture. It's not my own wisdom, not my personal me-centered attitude wisdom. No, it's not that. Notice what else he says. There's the emotional part of it. He says, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You ever just find yourself just singing praise to God for what He's done for you? You ever find yourself just singing psalms and singing hymns and, and spiritual songs? I don't care if you can sing or not. I can't sing. But I find myself praising God and singing hymns to God. I imagine that those terrible words that I'm singing, those, those, those off-tune and off, 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 all those other things that I'm singing, I imagine when they get to the ears of God, they're the most beautiful thing that He's ever heard. Beautiful thing He's ever heard. We sing psalms and we sing spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. It's all about God. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So we become emotional when we when we let the word of God dwell richly within us, when we hear the teachings of others and we we teach our children and we admonish one another. Thankfulness. We can sing songs of praise and sing hymns and spiritual songs. Thanks to thankfulness to God. But finally, the verse we read earlier. This is basically the closing remarks of Paul here. He says, and whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever we do, whatever words we say, whatever deeds we do, the words we speak or the works we do must be done in the name of Christ. The name of Christ, that means that we're under the authority and the approval of Jesus. The words I say, Lord, do you approve? The deeds I do, Lord, do you approve? Name means something here. It's a standard of quality by which something is judged. We are judged by the name of Christ. Think of a Ford and a Chevy. They are both judged by different standards. Some of you would argue that one is better than the other. But I can assure you that the standard that we need to be judged by is the name of Christ. And there is nothing better than that. So Christian, the Lord is the standard of quality for us, And we need to give thanks to God. We need to thank Him that He is the giver of, of all these things that we have, including our Savior and our Lord. First Chronicles 16.11 says this, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually.
Our pursuit is to know Christ more and more. He reveals Himself through His Word. As He reveals, we grow in Christ's likeness. The pursuits of this world become hollow and unfulfilling when we completely and are totally His. The pursuits of this world are unsatisfactory. They won't satisfy. They won't satisfy. So as we close, the key to life's greatest comeback is an encounter with the living Lord. That encounter changes our point of view. We're no longer that me-centered person. We're that Christ-centered person. It changes our person. It transforms our person. Notice when it says transform. Transform means you go from one thing to the next. Think of a butterfly. That's what transformation means. Transforms our passions. And finally, it transforms our pursuits. So the question this morning is, do you need a Christ-empowered comeback in your life? Are you here this morning and maybe you've never encountered the living Lord in a personal way? Maybe you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior. Today is the day of salvation. I don't want to alarm you, but... Listen, you may get up from that pew and not make another step. If you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you will spend eternity separated from Him. Maybe you have this morning. Maybe you have put your faith and trust in Christ. Maybe you have had that encounter with the living Lord. And maybe your life is more looking like the old self than it is the new self. But you know that you've had that encounter. You know that you've put your faith and trust in Christ. you just allowed the flesh more controlled in the spirit. If that's you today, you're walking in the old self. You're allowing that flesh to control you, but you can change that as well. It's called repentance. Put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. I'm not sure what your decision is. I'm not sure where you are today. But what can I, what I can assure you is we serve a living Lord. And I pray that you've had that encounter with that living Lord. And I pray that you can look at these things that Paul's talked about. The transformation of our point of view. The transformation of our person. The transformation of our passions and pursuits. Say, yes, Lord, I know that I've had that encounter. And I know that because you have transformed all of these things in my life. Whatever decision needs to be made. Listen, this altar is open. This altar is open. This altar will be open all day today. You can come and you can pray. You can come and be and pray. You can ask somebody to go with you. Other word, I don't know. Listen, the, the, the Spirit's moving in this church, y'all. The Spirit is moving. And I don't want to squelch the Spirit. I don't want to quench the Spirit. So we're going to have a hymn of invitation uh, and, and we're gonna we're gonna sing praises to God and and whatever whatever the decision that you need to make, please make that decision. Please make that decision before it is everlasting too late. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening today. We hope the word preached today would be used by God mightily as you go about your week. Again, if you would like more information about our church 
or would like more digital content, please feel free to check us out on the web at southsidenp.org. Have a blessed day and may God grant you grace this week to grow more into the likeness of Jesus.